Okay, good morning everyone. Um, there's a few housekeeping announcements I will make before we start. The first is, for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm Professor Andrew Murray. I'm a professor in the law department with um, particular research interests in information technology law and in data protection law, hence why I'm chairing today's lecture. Um, the first thing I have to do is actually just welcome you all to the LSE and to say that this lecture is part of the LSE European Institute APCO Worldwide Perspectives on Europe Series, and this one is in association with the Law Department. The lecture today is on the importance of strong data protection rules for growth and competitiveness, um, and it will last for a short period, maybe 20 minutes or so, after which there will be an opportunity for you to ask questions of our speaker. Uh, when we reach the Q&A session, could I ask you, uh, if you are wanting to ask a question, to keep it short and to restrict yourself to only one question, um, as other people will be wanting to ask questions, and we have to close proceedings by 12 p.m. sharp, as immediately afterwards there's going to be a lunchtime concert in here, and we need to reset the room to allow that to take place. Um, it is hoped that the lecture will be the subject of a podcast, so you will be recorded if you ask any questions, um, and there will be a microphone will be brought to you for that. Um, I'm also asked to advertise that today's lecture has a hashtag for those of you using Twitter. The hashtag is hash LSE data. So if you are posting anything on Twitter about this, please use the hashtag hash LSE data. Okay, now it brings me to the part I've been looking forward to. Um, I get the opportunity to introduce to you Vivian Redding. Uh, Vivian Redding has been the Vice President of the European Commission responsible for justice, fundamental rights and citizenship since February 2010. In 1999, she joined the European Commission as a Commissioner responsible for education, culture, youth, media and sports and was in that position till 2004. And then from then to 2010, she was responsible for the Information Society and Media. Prior to her political career, Vivian Redding started off as a journalist at the newspaper Luxembourg Vort, where she served as president of the Luxembourg Union of Journalists from 1986 to 1998. From 1979 onwards, she embarked on a political career working as a member of the Luxembourg Parliament. She reinforced her position by becoming a city councillor in 1981 and went on to become the national president of the Christian Social Women of Luxembourg, 1988-93. But you don't want to know all about what she did in the past. You want to hear about what she's doing now. So I'm going to stop at this point and introduce our speaker for the morning, Vivian Redding. Ladies and gentlemen, dear students, well, I do have students at home too, and I must say 11 o'clock, hmm, that's limit. <laughs> and so I thank you very much that you have gone up so early in order to <laughs> be at this lecture, and I really look forward to discuss uh, with the London School of Economics, European Institute and Department of Law on uh, one of the topics which is very hot at uh, this moment. Now, all of the, you have got up early enough in order to look the news and television this morning saw that uh, the Google story and uh, data protection was all over the place. So we are really uh, in uh, media's rest of uh, the um, uh, interest of today. I would like to discuss with you the reform 
that the European Commission adopted on the 25th of uh, January, the reform on data protection, and I know that uh, you are interested about uh, how the law is today and how the law is going to be tomorrow and why it is like this. Now, my starting point is to state the really obvious. The world has been turned upside down since the existing EU data protection framework was adopted in 1995. We now live in a world of immense communication possibilities. I do not need to explain that to the young generation who is utilizing uh, those means in, in, in a natural uh, way. You know that you can update friends and family uh, about what you are doing in this very moment, um, sending photos and uh, information at the tab of a finger. You can uh, access infinite knowledge, or at least what some think knowledge is, um, through highly refined research engines uh, that troll uh, the Internet. Um, you can entrust your private data to a cloud service provider without having to worry about storage spaces, and that's only the beginning of it, I am told. Smartphone applications will soon be able to constantly monitor your health, blood pressure, precise uh, drug dosage. Your car positioning systems will report traffic uh, jams and communicate with cameras to direct drivers into optimized routes, saving time and fuel. We're very needed here in London, I must say. <laughs> um, and then uh, the smart grids which combines smart meters and smart appliances to help us uh, save energy. You name it, you get it, you get it all, and even more than we can imagine uh, today. And that's good, because that is really where the growth is lying, where our competitiveness uh, is lying. Um, those technological developments are welcome drivers of innovation, growth, and job uh, creation, uh, and they also mean that we are increasingly living in a global uh, village. Um, more than two billion internet users, more than one billion smartphone users worldwide. And I was last weekend in Barcelona in the GSMA uh, fair, uh, seeing what is in the pipeline. I mean, uh, the uh, smart um, phone users, the mobile uh, world is going even to increase. Um, in the next coming months and years. That brings, of course, a huge potential of growth, and Europe will harness this potential. Now, what is the currency of this digital economy? The currency is data. Internet, cloud computing, mobile devices allow us to access our data wherever we go. Now, this has also consequences, not only on our economy, but also on the way we live and on the way how we organize our societies. Imagine when we created the first um, data protection law in 1995. At that moment, 1% uh, of uh, the people in, in the world were using the Internet, and uh, the guy who invented Facebook was 11 years old. 
Um, now, since then, uh, the figures have changed. 97% uh, of uh, the people are, are, are using um, telecommunicated uh, information, and personal data has become really a valuable asset. Uh, the market for analysis of large sets of data is growing by 40% per year. Can you imagine uh, what uh, that means as a development? Um, this free flow of data, this is the currency which we have uh, in this new internet world. And like all currencies, it depends on one element, trust. Can we trust that this data which is out there, which we give out there, is well protected? <coughs> If it is so, then we will entrust businesses and authorities with it, buy online, accept new product developments, accept new services. And that means also we policymakers have to see that this trust is continuing because if there is no trust, people will be led not to hand out their personal data. And in a world of total connectivity and exploding data volumes, that would really hamper the economic um, development. So the challenge for data protection and privacy is important. And to tackle it, the public and private sector must work together, because if we are not taking individual devices um, uh, we are not talking about individual devices anymore. We are talking about a complex and interconnected public and private system. And let's face it, the way this has been addressed so far is not fully satisfactory because we are in an open world and what have our past legislations done? They have been ad adapted to a fragmented world. And so there is a discrepancy between what is out there and how the rules function. At a lecture in Brussels last month, Samuel Palmisano, the CEO of uh, IBM, said that, and I quote him, the data explosion combined with a new level of data integration is a revolution. I agree with him. And I agree also with the point he made after that the new level of integration we have, thanks to cheap communication, cheap uh, sensors, cheap mobile devices, can only work, says the boss of IBM, with higher standards, with more expertise infused into public policies. Because without this expertise, neither political nor technological integration can work and the benefits will be fragmented. All of this is true, and all of this presupposes that people care about data protection. Do they really care? Are people concerned about how their data is used? Do people mind if their data is sold to third-person parties without they knowing about this? Well, if I would ask in this room here, the younger generation would certainly say that, well, who cares? 
the older generation will be very worried. Uh, if I look at the average, the answer is both in the UK and in the rest of Europe, people really do care, people really do worry. 80% of British citizens are concerned that their personal data held by companies may be used for a purpose other than that for which it was collected. That is 10% higher than the European average. So people in this country are even more concerned than uh, Europeans in average. And almost half of the British Internet users are concerned about falling victim to online fraud and identity theft. Oh. I'm not astonished about these uh, figures because there are, is really a long list of recent data breach scandals in the UK. If we do not tackle those problems, then the internet economy will have in the future a problem to grow. We need people's trust in the internet to prevail and that will be an achievement to reach that 79% of the British Internet users buy goods and services online. That is also higher uh, than the EU average. The EU average is 60%, so Brits are nearly 20% higher than the EU average. But a quarter of them feel very nervous uh, about what they are doing um, because they feel they have no control over the data they disclose when shopping on the internet. Now, if this figure grows, then the other figures of the confidence of buying uh, on e-commerce uh, will go down, and that is not what we want to achieve. And that is the reason why, uh, if we want to have a long-term growth strategy, if we want to unleash the potential of the digital single market, then we have to have smart regulation which brings back the confidence of the people in the development today and in the future development to come. And because if you have an internal market, and this is our strength in Europe, and we have the biggest economy in the world, where with our 500 million very powered um, consumers, now, we lose the impact of this market because of the fragmentation of the rules. So first thing I proposed on the 25th of January is to get rid of the fragmentation. Put on the table a regulation, which means one single law, one single set of rules applicable to all businesses and public authorities on the whole of the European territory. The existing directive has brought with it 27 different and often contradictory regimes. The new regulation will put an end to this fragmentation and it will put an end also to the extra costs the fragmentation impose on the business world which hold back the economic growth and innovation. I have also taken the decision to set up a one-stop shop for data protection. Instead of having to deal with authorities in several member states, if you want to cover the entire internal market, a business will now have a single contact point 
the National Data Protection Authority, where the business has its main establishment. This is, of course, a major simplification for businesses, and I believe one of the biggest deregulation um, uh, initiative the Commission has taken uh, during the last years. And it is also important from the point of view of the data subject, the consumer, who can turn to his local body to get a problem solved wherever this problem has arisen. All data protection authorities have a common interest to see that the regulation is applied in a coherent, consistent manner. There will be specific mechanisms to ensure that they can work together very closely to tackle cross-border cases, as it happens, for instance, already in competition law. So actually what we do in many ways here, we apply the competition rule functioning um, to data protection in order to make it efficient and also in order to give teeth to the authorities. Each national authority must have sufficient powers and resources and it will get a set of strong sanctions to deter non-compliance. Finally, the new rules, if applied as I propose, will really be a red tape cutter for businesses. Under the current rules, companies face cumbersome and costly general notification requirements for processing data. We scrap those and make the companies integrate into the companies a responsible risk assessment and data protection culture. And we help specifically those SMEs which have, whose business is, is not data uh, processing, whose business is doing something else. They do not need uh, to apply uh, those rules. Why? Because we have decided in the Commission to have a policy which says SMEs first. Think small. Think how you can leave startups and SMEs do their job instead of producing red tape. All this put together will bring for our companies in Europe, our companies, that does not mean necessarily European companies, but all companies operating on the European territories, net savings amounting to 2.3 billion per year in administrative burden. This money we can spend in a much more efficient way. But achieving growth is not only about completing our internal market. It is also about making this strong continent, this internal market, a standard for a global benchmark. How will these rules strengthen the position of Europe in the global village? With clearer rules and better enforcement, we can be confident that our data protect is protected inside the EU's borders, but what if the data goes out of the EU? Now, first, the new rules will apply to all controllers established in the EU, but they will also apply to all those who are offering services and products to individuals in the EU, whether they are established here or not. 
Europe represents a huge market for foreign companies, and our new rules will make this market borderless, one rule, one continent, as I already said. And the same rule for all, whatever the nationality of the company. The only thing which is important, the company addresses itself to European citizens. International data transfers should be easy and should be safe. For this reason, the new rules allow a company based in the EU but with subsidiaries across the globe to establish so-called binding corporate rules. Binding corporate rules are a corporate code set up within an organization or group of organization which allows to transfer data worldwide with full legal certainty. It also means that the customer's personal data is fully protected and that redress is available when there is a problem. So far about the companies. What now about the people? Does this new data protection setup give the people more confidence in Europe's digital single market so that they utilize the uh, services which are proposed to them? First, the reform will reinforce transparency requirements. People need to be informed about the processing of their data in simple, clear language. You know how it functions today. Today you have the small print, dozens of pages. Nobody understands it because it's in, written in a jargon. And then people agree to what they have not agreed to de facto and they have no idea what happens with their personal data. We have to put an end to this. In the future, Internet users must be told which data is collected, for what purposes, how long it will be stored, if it is used by third parties, and for what purposes. They must know their rights and which authority to address if those rights are violated. They might, must be able to make an informed decision about what to disclosure, when and to whom. Whenever users give their agreement to the processing of their data, it has to be meaningful. In short, their consent needs to be specific and giving explicitly. Now, what if something happens with the data an individual has given to a company? If it is stolen, if it is hacked, you know what's happening today. Nothing. Uh, the data... Um, owner is later, the last to be informed that, for instance, um, the credit card uh, data has been stolen. Individuals in the future must be swiftly informed when their personal data is lost, stolen, or hacked. Um, the security breaches affect millions of users around the world. And we all remember the breaches which have happened lately. And these breaches undermine consumers' trust in the digital economy. That is why in the future there will be a general obligation for data controllers to notify data breaches without undue delay, and I already said it very clearly, that means for me within 24 
hours. So the 24 hours uh, story is not like it had been on the internet for something else. It is for data breaches. This reform will give individuals better control over their own data because the data belong to the individuals and look at the European Treaty, look at the Charter of Fundamental Rights. Um, our Constitution very clearly says, stipulates it twice, that the data belongs to the individuals. So this is for us policymakers even not a choice. It is a must that we need to introduce this. So what does this better control mean? I have already explained the transparency rules. The portability uh, rule is next. When, when I was telecom commissioner, I had introduced the portability rules for phone numbers. Well, here we are going to do something similar. If a user wants to take his holiday pictures off a photo-sharing website, and upload them somewhere else, he should be able to do so. And if he wants to take these photos off and not give it out to anybody, keep them for himself, should be able to do so. That is a right to be forgotten. You know that the Internet has almost unlimited search and memory capacity, so even tiny scraps of personal information can have a huge impact, even years after they were shared and made public. That is the wake-up call uh, many youngsters have uh, when um, their data find themselves in the files uh, of a headhunter um, where they don't belong eh, because um, they were taken four o'clock in the morning in, um, well, okay. Um, so um, maybe that's important to have a right to be forgotten for this uh, kind of uh, data. Um, this right to be forgotten, by the way, it's not new. It, is, it builds on already existing rules, which unfortunately, because they had been written down in 1995, are not very clear and not very adapted to the Internet uh, world. So it, it was necessary to come back to those rules and adapt them to our environment. It is the individual who should be in a position to protect the privacy of his data by choosing whether or not to share. Under the new rules, people shall have the right, and not only the possibility, as it is stipulated today, to withdraw the consent to the processing of the personal data they have given out themselves. The available figures speak for themselves. Three quarters of the British Internet users would like to have the possibility to have their personal data deleted from a website whenever they decide to do that. If an individual no longer wants his personal data to be processed or stored on a website or a server, then there is, and if there is no legitimate reason for keeping it, the data should be removed from the system. Like all rights, and I think that is a very important, I, I, I have to insist on this because um, that is sometimes forgotten. There is no right which is absolute. There are different rights. And they are fine as long as they do not clash with another right. 
So the right to be forgotten is not an absolute right either. There are cases where there is a legitimate and legally justified interest to keep the data in a database. For instance, the archives of a newspaper are a good example. It's clear that the right to be forgotten cannot be a right to erase history. That's not what is meant. Neither must the right to be forgotten take precedence over the right to freedom of expression. The independence of the press and the freedom of expressions are also rights. So we have, uh, when we do uh, legislation, equilibrate uh, both. The right to be forgotten is not either a right to censorship. And that is why the new data protection rules are carefully drafted to make sure that the balance is right. They include explicit provisions on the freedom of expression and information. Data protection is a fundamental right, but it is not the only one that must be protected. Ladies and gentlemen, dear students, the commissioner who is speaking to you is not the only one who is caring for this subject. During some years, I was the only one who was caring. But there is an evolution going on. And even the Obama administration has changed, has evolved in the thinking. So last week, it unveiled a Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights as part of the first online Protect Individual Privacy Rights Initiative to give users more control over how their information is handled. That also shows that Europe is showing the way and that other parts of the world are learning from this. The ideal would, of course, be that the high standards can be applied in all of the free world. Because in a totally connected world with exploding data flows, we need this high standard for data protection. We need to secure also Europe's place as a standard setter. And that is exactly what we are doing with our former legislation and with our new legislation. A legislation which is not only there in order to respond to what the fundamental law tells us to do, but responds also to the necessity of opening the market for businesses and giving security to the individuals. So now I'm counting on the European Parliament, which has started to work on this um, uh, regulation and on the Council of European Ministers to be very swift in helping this regulation to become law because we really need it. Thank you. Okay, we now have some time for questions and answer session. Um, can I remind you, I see hands already going up, can I remind you to keep your question concise because time is limited. Please do not make speeches and wait until the roving microphone arrives before starting to ask your question. Can I also ask you to identify yourself when you ask a question by name and by affiliation? If you're a student, you can maybe say what programme you're on um, so that we know who you are. So can we stick? Uh, we'll start with near the back in the middle of the gentleman with his hand up there. 
Oh, hello. Um, I'm Paul Burnell from the University of East Anglia. Um, I was very interested, particularly in the last part, where you talk about you, the um, U.S. following Europe to some extent um, in Obama's Bill of Rights for Privacy and so on. What about U.S. companies? Do you get the sense that they're following EU as well? Because particularly with Google and recently with Twitter and the data sift um, sense, we have, a, we have a sense that they're not following Europe, the European initiative. They're trying to resist. Shall I answer this at once? Yeah. Um, what I explained about uh, the American politics, data protection was never on the agenda. It has come to the agenda at the end of last year when uh, they understood in the United States that we were very serious on uh, reforming our 1995 uh, data protection rules. And uh, I applaud to the fact that our American friends are thinking about how they could reform their rules um, in whatever way, but inspiring themselves uh, on what Europe is doing. Uh, very many concepts uh, which are in the uh, latest Obama paper uh, are concepts which are in our uh, proposal of law. So we are on the lawmaking, they are still on the reflection phase. This is one thing. The other thing is the American companies. You are absolutely right. Um, the American companies resist applying European law. And for them it is rather easy to do it under the current legislative um, set um, because this is a fragmented one and it doesn't really have the teeth in order to apply the law, to force a company to apply the law. What, which leads to what? It leads to um, an absence of level playing field between European companies on the European territory which have to apply European law and companies from outside of Europe who say that is none of their business. And that is the reason why the new regulation, as I already explained, uh, is very simple. One rule, one continent. All those who want to make business on this continent apply this rule. If they don't, then the, the, author, the, the authorities, the control, the data control authorities, have the means in order to force a company uh, to obey to the rules. I give you an example. Uh, you, you might have heard about the question of Google, which today started uh, its new uh, system. And you might have heard that the European um, authorities, data protection authorities, gave the, uh, uh, the, the duty to CNIL, uh, the French uh, authority, to analyze uh, what those rules do as compared to the existing legal basis of 1995. And CNIL found uh, that it was very worried because 
these rules are in contradiction with even the existing uh, rules now. Now, uh, what could happen uh, to Google today? It could happen to Google that all the data protection authorities in Europe start to fine Google? Peanuts. What could happen to Google tomorrow if the new regulation is in place? Then the fines could go up to 2% of the worldwide turnover of the company. That would mean roughly up to 560 million fines. So that looks already a little more serious. That's why I say that we are doing exactly the same. We're giving ourselves the same instruments we have in competition law, similar instruments than we have in competition law, in order to make these data protection rules effective. Because if the rules are not implemented, then sorry, you do not need the rules. You need rules to be implemented in a fair way for all those who utilize the internal market. Sorry, I was a little longer on this one because I believe it is, it, it is very basic to what we do. I think the gentleman in the third row there was early. Can you just wait for the microphone, sir? My name is Tom Harris. I work for a, a bank called Standard Chartered Bank, and my question is exactly the opposite of the one uh, that you have uh, just been answering. Um, the next few years, the growth for European business will not be in Europe. It's going to be in the emerging markets. If we want growth and competitiveness, we have to enable European business uh, to uh, en enhance their competitiveness overseas. We are facing, as a bank, and this is true of so many businesses, a problem because there are conflicting data protection rules being developed all across the globe, which are making it increasingly difficult mm -hmm. to process data on a global basis. Um, in many Asian countries in particular, we are being compelled to hold data on local servers. We're no longer being able to do things on a global basis. So my question is exactly the opposite. Not how do you deal with companies coming into Europe, but in what respect do your proposals make it easier for European companies to process data outside, and how are you going to avoid the conflicts of jurisdiction that will arise? If I understood you correctly, you're saying there is a provision for subsidiaries of European companies overseas, mm -hmm. but essentially that provision is that they must operate according to European rules. Mm -hmm. And that's not the problem. The problem is that those rules will often be in conflict with the rules um, created by other regulators. Yes, what I explained were the binding uh, corporate rules, uh, which apply to a company um, with subsidiaries outside of Europe. What you are speaking is when there is a conflict of uh, jurisdictions, which you do not need to go uh, up to uh, Asia in order to get one uh, uh, like this. Uh, you know the Patriot Act of the United States and uh, um, the, the, uh, the intervention uh, into private uh, companies uh, by the American state on this. So that is a conflict between, between jurisdictions, which has to be uh, uh, handled, uh, that is a conflict on international law, which has to be uh, handled as such 
uh, in uh, international courts. That's one thing. The second one is, when I say that what we are doing here uh, is a standard setter for the world, that means that slowly and slowly we hope that uh, other parts of the world, when the pressure of democracy becomes stronger, because if you are in, in, in a dictatorship, uh, then um, you do not need any roles to protect the individual, because you do what the individual, whatever you want to do. Hmm? But uh, the hope is that uh, more dictatorships change into a democracy, looking then for what are the best operable rules and looking to Europe. This is, by the way, already happening today. Uh, we have many visitors uh, worldwide who come to the European Commission and have a look on the way we are building up our rules because they want to do the same. So this example might be an example for the future, but I have no power uh, on other parts of the world. Um, I have some kind of a say uh, in our institutional framework in Europe, but not on other continents. There's a lady right to your right. Good morning. I'm part of the old generation, and as you said, I'm very worried, but not about the information which is on the internet, but about what you are doing. Because when I hear you speak, you seem to ignore that there's already a very strong ethic on the internet. And the ethic comes not from regulations, but from the customer. The market is not fragmented at all. What is fragmented is government. It is the government that are fragmented. So you have a problem. But the users have a worldwide market. And because there's a worldwide market, they can cause infinite damage to any company that would behave inappropriately. And this is why you can see companies like eBay, for example, who initially would look like a very fancy idea. People I'm trading so, I'm things. sorry, is it a question actually yes. coming? Yes, because you don't seem to understand that there's a strong ethic. And I want to make the point that if I have a problem with data protection, I'm not going to call the European Commission. I'm going to go on a blog and tell the world what the company has done. And I feel that what you're doing is only preventing small companies from growing. And I don't know if you realize how much, how, how much you are going to damage the growth by regulating. Well, that's an interesting opinion. <laughs> okay, um, can we take one from the gentleman there in a second? He's put his hand up for a while. Yes, I'm Mr. Bonfa from Oxford for Sustainable Development. My question is more the data or information in relation with the government. So how you see this kind of, because we see the data are paid by the people, this means taxpayer. Why this data should not be available, let's say we have this kind of information democracy, at, especially with the government? Second question, how do you relate it? I mean, the information technology with EU 2020 strategies. It looks that ICT or data should be at core in order to have a knowledge, in order to have a performance, in order to, let's say, develop strategies. And this is not the case. Several times I did develop this kind of uh, using ICT for sustainable development in a way of, uh, uh, let's say, present these new technologies like cloud computing or emerging technologies. Europe does not accept this type of concept. In other words, what I want to say, Europe is well below behind the Euro, sorry, USA 
not be competitive if the government does not change the way of doing. Thank you. You are absolutely right, uh, and uh, that is one of the problems of this fragmented market. Uh, when you as a company uh, want to um, uh, install yourself on the whole internal market of Europe, you will have to comply with 27 different uh, rules, you have to ask 27 uh, different authorizations, and this is what I said, which in the end, all, all the, um, uh, the notification uh, rules which are on you, uh, this costs the companies 2.3 billion a year. So we will scratch those, uh, scrap those, because it is necessary if you want to uh, create a real digital internal market not to have uh, this bulk of rules. Huh? That is why I said it is one of the most important deregulatory um, uh, initiatives which has ever been uh, taken in the European uh, uh, Union. Now, you asked the first question on the... That is so, sorry, just only one question. There's too many people asking questions. Yeah, well, that is exactly part of the 2020 strategy, to get rid of the red tape, to open the market, and to give a chance to the companies, most of all to the SMEs and to the startups, which will be completely out of uh, regulation. So uh, it's a complete new concept we are putting on the table. The first question you asked was on uh, the government data and the availability of the government data in order to be uh, used by um, private companies in order to, um, yes, to be used by uh, private companies. The no, sorry, and then I didn't understand your first okay, question. You, we can speak about okay. that later. Okay, there's a lady there who has a question. Yeah, um, hello, my name is Ananda Plate. I'm a uh, student um, of health policy planning and financing. I also represent a patient cancer patient organization. I was a patient myself for many years. And uh, first of all, I wanted to congratulate you for the proposal. It was, um, we, we were all waiting for it. Um, and then uh, I, was, I was just going to mention that when a patient, this is what I uh, hear uh, and, um, from, from the patients, when you are a patient, um, a cancer patient, your priority are, isn't data protection. Your priority is survival. Uh, once this cancer, if it is a chronic one, gets chronic um, and you have to live with it for many years, Data protection is a concern. So my question is related to how, um, how do you think informed consent can really be ensured if a patient gives consent when actually the, the priority isn't protecting the data but surviving. So he would actually, I'm going to put it like this, he would actually sign anything to get information. And the second one is how to ensure that you as a patient, well, not, it is the same question, uh, how to make, um, make that information um, forgotten once it's out there, once it crossed the Atlantic and once you actually handed that information over. Okay, thank you. Actually, I thought in the beginning that you would answer, uh, ask a question on e-health. Uh, because e-health is, I believe, one of the, uh, uh, the development uh, possibilities which we do have 
uh, in Europe uh, in order to uh, make the um, uh, comfort of the patients much bigger, uh, to leave people live in their villages and uh, to, have, um, to, to, to have the doctors uh, nevertheless uh, uh, be with their patients. So, uh, and that is one of the elements of, uh, of uh, Europe 2020, to develop uh, e-health uh, systems. Now, your question was different. If you have uh, given your consent just before you, uh, because you are uh, so eager, uh, you, you don't care, and later on, you see that this consent maybe is misused, well, then you will have the possibility to address yourself to your data protection authority, and the data protection authority should clarify uh, this question for you. Uh, the data protection authorities, the local ones, the national ones, will be uh, strengthened not only for the commercial uh, companies, but also for the individuals, so that the right of the individuals to the preserving of the personal data, most of all uh, in vulnerable cases, and health is a vulnerable uh, case, will be reinforced through the new uh, data protection rules. Okay, now time's starting to run away from us, so we're going to take, I'm afraid, there's still lots of hands around, but I'm afraid just two last questions. We've got one from the gentleman there, and there's one from the lady here at front who's been waiting a while. So if we can take these two questions, keep them short, and we'll get an answer from our speaker, and then we'll have to close after that. Hi, Commissioner. Thank you for a great speech. Um, I think we all agree with the principles behind the, the draft, but can I ask why was there such concern within the Commission, such debate within the Commission? on the draft and why there's such hostility from business. Can you explain why you think there's such hostility to this draft? It's been described as the worst case scenario. Okay, thank you. And the lady down at the front here will take the two together. San Francesca Bria for Il Sole 24 Ore, a newspaper in Italy. So first of all, I want to congratulate the Commission for this crucial initiative. I think it takes, it puts at the center the citizens in the innovation process in Europe, which I think is great. So congratulations. Uh, my question is about the timeline of this um, proposal, because my worry is that the Commission uh, now has a proposal but has to go through the approval of the Parliament and the Council, and that will take probably maybe a couple of years, and the quest for one year and maybe two years. And my question is, now we see the topic is very hot, and the privacy policy enforcement of Google and the initiatives that are going on show that the regulation process maybe needs to be speed up if you want to have real protection from European, for European citizens and businesses right now. And I have in this relation, as well with your colleague Cross and the Digital Agenda and um, Innovation Europe initiatives, I want to know if you're teaming up also concerning, for, for example, the jurisdiction of the cloud computing, because if all the data are actually kept somewhere else where you can't enforce the jurisdiction of the European Union, then it would be a problem for the European citizens. So I want to know what's the interrelation within the DGs amongst these issues. Thank you. Well, the first debate in the Commission, uh, that is normal. Uh, we always have debates before we come out uh, with a proposal. Uh, that is, uh, you see, we, uh, on the contrary of some governments, the Commission is a very uh, open and transparent uh, uh, system. I have been working on this piece of legislation for two years 
with a lot of public consultations, with a lot of hearings, with, a, with, with all the forces which can be interested in this uh, new legislation having the possibility to come in. And then in the end, we take a decision and we put this decision on the table. Now that's democracy. And democracy will continue. It will continue uh, because now the piece of legislation is in the hand of the European Parliament, who has started already to work on it, of the Council of Ministers, and they both have to agree on the final uh, come out. Now, I do not think that this will take several years because there is a, quest, a, a feeling of urgency. Huh? Things are not going right. And we need, if we want uh, the internal market um, uh, in these new technologies really to flourish, then we need to have legal certainty. Today there is no legal certainty. And there is also no uh, level playing field between different companies. We need also that level playing field. So the accelerated uh, process is uh, going on. I have so far not heard um, uh, big objections. Um, in, uh, uh, for the lawmakers in the Parliament or in the Council, so things go very smoothly. Uh, the hostility uh, from companies. Well, there were a lot of big companies who have applauded uh, this piece of uh, regulation. The U U.S. Chamber of Commerce, for instance, has issued a very positive uh, statement because there are a lot of companies who need this. And I have uh, spoken uh, as well in Davos as now uh, in uh, Barcelona with a lot of uh, CEOs uh, from the world of uh, technology. And they say, well, why did we need to wait so long? Finally, there is a piece of legislation which we need in order to have legal certainty and to be capable to utilize the whole of the internal market as one and not as 27 conflicting uh, legislations. And then how are we doing uh, to have coherence inside uh, of the policy making in the uh, Commission? Uh, Nelly Cruz, who is the Commissioner for Telecoms, was a, a real helping hand to get this piece of legislation uh, out. And I am a real helping hand for uh, Nelly Cruz for all questions which are concerning um, the uh, way we handle uh, the Internet uh, world. Commissioners are working together on these pieces of legislation, even if uh, one of them takes the lead. And um, the whole cloud computing aspect has been integrated in this piece of legislation because we do not judge on where data is stored. We only judge on the fact that a company likes to utilize the internal market and addresses itself to uh, European citizens. So that is enough. Where this company has its uh, main seat, where it has its um, uh, uh, computers and uh, its storage, that doesn't matter. It's the behavior on the market which counts. And there we have also a possibility to intervene. Okay, unfortunately we've no more time for questions. We've used our entire time. It just leads for me to do a couple of last things. One is to thank you all for coming and making the event what it is today. And can I ask you to help me with one last thing? Because Commissioner Redding has to get off to another meeting, can you just remain in your seats for a minute or two and allow her to get out and get to her car for her next meeting? And finally, can you thank Commissioner Redding in the usual way?